are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles this morning, grab them and turn to Psalm 80. We've already been primed a bit. The responsive reading this morning was taken from parts of Psalm 80, and now we're going to give ourselves to the whole of Psalm 80 and what this song teaches us about Christmas, about Jesus, about ourselves. Let's give ourselves to God's word. This is God's word, Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word now. Amen. So this morning, we're just going to dive right into the deep end, and as we work through Psalm 80, throughout this sermon, I want to keep one question in front of you the whole time. What does God think about you? What does God think about you? And as we work our way into Psalm 80 this morning, we're quickly going to find that this whole psalm and our exposition of it hangs upon this very question. When we look into Psalm 80, we find a man leading Israel in worship and consequently a whole people wrestling with this question, what does God think about me? Or on a corporate scale, what does God think about us? So what does God think about me? Before we go anywhere this morning, before we launch into Psalm 80, we need to ground ourselves to understand the importance of this question for us and we need to do a bit of theology. So the God of the Bible, we're thinking of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not an impersonal force. No, the God we find revealed in the pages of the Bible is not the God of of deism. 
God who is distant, a God who is far off, a God who is detached from the humdrum of our daily lives. Rather, when we turn to the Scriptures and we, we search out who this God is and what He's like, we find that, a, that this is a God who, who knows His people. Listen to what Psalm 139 says about our God. The psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. This is not the God of deism. This is the God of the Bible, a God who knows his people. And this gives weight to our question, well, what does God think about me? And as we look into Psalm 139 and what the psalmist tells us, this truth about God is exhilarating and disturbing at the same time. God knows us. He knows us intensively. He knows us comprehensively. He knows us exhaustively. And as we think about this truth, it brings us great comfort at certain points in our lives. God knows us. He knows the troubles we're experiencing, the trials we're facing. He knows the concerns and the worries and the the griefs that fill up our hearts. But at the same time, at other points in our lives, this this truth about God that we find in Psalm 139 is, is disturbing. God knows us. He knows the thoughts that occupy your mind, every single one of them. Not one of them is hidden from his glance. He knows the deeds that you've done with your hands, both in public and in private. Even more, he knows the hidden motives that operate within your heart. He knows exactly what you do, and he knows why you do what you do, or why you said what you said. Simply put, God knows everything about us. And so this gives extreme weight to our question this morning. Well, what does God think about me? Or as we think as a corporate people, what does God think about us? God actually thinks about us, and he's thinking about us this morning. And if he thinks about us, what does he think about us? What does he say? And so let's turn to Psalm 80. And as we turn to Psalm 80, we're going to see a people wrestle with this question. What does God think about us? So right from the beginning of Psalm 80, as we attempt to understand it, we realize that the people of Psalm 80 are a people in trouble. So look at verse 1 this morning. This is an urgent cry, and this urgent cry sets the tone for the entire psalm. The psalmist says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. And as we move on throughout the psalm, similar petitions are found. The psalmist leads the people of God saying this, verse 2, Stir up your might and come to save us. Then verse 3, Restore us, O God. Then verse 14, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. And so as we consider these petitions given to the Lord, we find that Israel's situation is desperate. If Israel doesn't receive help from the Lord and receive it in a timely fashion, the patient's going to die on the operating table. And we understand as we wrestle with these petitions that these petitions are not polite requests. Well, Lord, when you have time, when your schedule's a bit lighter, could you, could you come and save us? No, this is urgent. These are bold and daring pleas to the Lord. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Stir up your might and come to save us. Now, as we press into this psalm, we begin to taste the trouble that caused Israel to cry out with such desperation. And their trouble, as we press into this psalm, consisted of three components. First of all, these people were in the midst of heavy emotional trauma. So if you ever heard the phrase, you, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. 
In verse 5, the psalmist comes to us and he tells us the diet of Israel. And this diet is shocking. They weren't eating nutritionally dense meals full of healthy greens and lean meats. They weren't eating off the fat of the land. Rather, their bread and their drink, look at verse 5. We're thinking about here the basics of their diet were what? Tears. They ate the bread of tears and they drank from a cup overflowing with tears. What a way to put it. We get a picture here from the psalmist that the the sum and substance of Israel's life at this point in redemptive history is a matter of profound grief. We're eating tears, we're drinking tears, that's our life, tears. So emotional trauma. Second, these people were caught up in political disaster. In verse 6, we learn that Israel's neighbors no longer practice the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Rather, the psalmist tells us that Israel has become what? An, An object of contention. The nations have come and fought against Israel, and then they have fought over Israel, like two toddlers pulling at that toy back and forth. Who's going to have Israel for themselves, while the whole time mocking Israel in this scene? And as we move on in the psalm, we get a clearer picture of what this political catastrophe meant for Israel. Look at verses 8 through 16. The psalmist reveals Israel's trouble through a story about a vineyard. In this story, Israel is this vine or this vineyard. And listen to what happens to this vine. The psalmist tells us about unmitigated destruction. The walls of this vineyard are broken down. Looters have invaded and have destroyed and taken away all the fruit of the vineyard. Wild pigs have come into the vineyard and have ravaged the vine. And finally, the psalmist tells us the end, the destructive end of Israel. What happened to this vine? Verse 16. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. So what does all this mean? What's going on in Israel? Political catastrophe for the people of God. Their enemies are ruling over them. And they've been cut down, destroyed. So emotional trauma, political catastrophe. Third, these people were in the midst of a deep spiritual depression. So as we think about this, emotional trauma or physical pain or political problems, none of these by themselves or even together are a walk in the park. But we understand something that these things, physical pain, political problems, can be endured and they can be endured when God is near his people. We know the truth that God's presence can sustain a weary man, a weary woman. Psalm 73, verse 26, the psalmist tells us, My flesh and my heart may fail, but but God is the strength of my portion and forever. And what the psalmist is saying, even if all of my earthly coverings are stripped away, if I have God, I shall live. I shall be strengthened. But what happens in Psalm 80? Every earthly comfort is stripped away, and these people turn to God, and what happens? God's not there. He's distant. Listen to these words in verse 5. They should shock us. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? So here are people, emotional trauma, political disaster, spiritual depression. And so we can say Israel is in a heap of trouble. They need God to act and they need God to act quickly. But we cannot be satisfied this morning with simply describing Israel's condition, describing Israel's troubles. We need to go deeper this morning. We need to begin to to probe the logic of this psalm. And we can do this by asking questions of the psalm. 
we ask, well, why has such trouble come upon you, Israel? Do you have any insight into this? Or we can ask more frankly, well, who's behind all of this trouble? Who's behind the emotional trauma and the political disaster and the spiritual depression? What's so interesting about Psalm 80 is what doesn't happen in this psalm. So the psalmist recognizes the emotions of the people of God. And, and when he recognizes the emotions of the people of God, he, he doesn't psychologize about them. He recognizes the political disaster. But when he recognizes the political disaster, he doesn't spend his time pointing at this people group or that people group. He doesn't name any of Israel's enemies. Even more, when he's considering the spiritual condition of the people of God, they're in a deep spiritual depression. He doesn't lay any blame to any priest or prophet or king within Israel. Rather, what does this psalmist do? Well, he points his finger at one person. It's God. And he points his finger at God again and again and again. And think this through with me. Don't take my word for it. Consider the emotional state of the people of God. We can ask, why does Israel eat the bread of tears and drink from this cup of overflowing tears? Look at verse 5. The psalmist says, you, remember who the psalmist is talking to. He's addressing God. You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. So why is Israel eating this diet? It's because God has given them this diet. God has filled these people with grief. Or consider the political disaster that's come upon Israel. Why is Israel so utterly destroyed? Why have the walls been broken down and the fruit looted and the vine burnt up and wild boars have come in ravaging the land? Listen to verse 6. The psalmist says, You, speaking to God, you make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Or look at verse 12. The psalmist says this to God, Why have you broken down its walls? Why political disaster? The psalmist says, It's God who's moved the nations against us. It's God who's responsible for all of this destruction. Or consider the spiritual depression that's gripped the people of God. This is the worst thing that could happen to a people. Why is Israel so utterly alone? Well, listen to verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Why is Israel alone? It's because God is angry with their prayers. It's because God has closed his ears to his people. It's because God's removed his support. He's removed his his satisfying divine presence from among the people. He is withdrawn from Israel. And so we can return to our question this morning. What does God think about you? What does God think about us? What does God think about me? If the psalmist were to show up this morning, if the people of Israel were to take a seat beside us this morning, how would they have answered this question? What does God think about me? Well, we don't have to guess because we find an answer in verse 16. So look there in your Bibles with me. So if you're reading from the ESV this morning, it translates verse 16 this way. We have some work to to do here to understand it. So verse 16 reads, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. So the first half of 16 is talking about the story of vine, what, what's happened to Israel and God's judgments. What's happened to Israel, they've been destroyed. 
But then something happens here. 16 goes on and it says this. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. So destruction has come upon the people of God, but then the ESV translates the second half of the verse to be a petition to the Lord. And so the people of God are coming to the Lord saying, these, these enemies have destroyed us. Now, Lord, we ask that you would destroy our enemies, that you would set their record straight, that you would come and save us from their hands. That's what the ESV says verse 16 is about. But this isn't the only way to translate the text, nor do I think it's the best way to translate the text. So we can go to some other translations of the Bible. We go to the NIV. So the NIV helps us out here. It translates verse 16 like this. Your vine is cut down and is burned with fire. So far the same as the ESV. But the NIV says this. At your rebuke, your people perish. Okay, the NIV does that. We can turn to a different translation. The New American Standard Bible does something similar as the NIV. It says, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. So the ESV finds a, a petition in verse 16. Lord, come at, come save us. But in these other translations, the NIV, the New American Standard Bible, find a casual connection. You see what they're doing here? Why has trouble come upon Israel? Why destruction? Why emotional turmoil? Why spiritual depression? Well, the answer is, these translations say, there is a rebuke on the face of the Lord. They perish at the rebuke of your face. And this is striking. Because as we think about it, and as we know it by common sense, the face is all important in the act of communication. How can you know if someone's happy with you? Well, as you're chatting with them, they'll be speaking good words about you or what you've done. But that, that speech will be accompanied by what? A smile or a gleam in their eyes or a wink. And, and, and their, their face, their countenance reveals what's inside of them, what they think about you. Or if someone's angry with you, there's going to be certain words coming out of their mouths. It's going to be accompanied with what? A scowl or other facial expressions. And their face reveals what? What they think about you. And so here is the psalmist. He's going to look at the face of God. So in our time, we're all masked up. And what happens when we're wearing masks? Well, we can't see each other's countenances very well. But the psalmist doesn't find a masked God. The mask of God is ripped off. And so here's the psalmist. He, he goes to God and he sees the face of God. And, and when he looks at the face of God, what does he see? Well, he tells us, they perish at the rebuke of your face. What does God think about me? The psalmist answers, God is displeased with me. I can see it on his face. And so here is Israel. They come before the Lord. They look at the face of the Lord. And what do they see? What does God think about me? The Lord is displeased with us. As we consider this, this is a sobering reality. The psalmist looks upon his God. This is the God of creation, the God of covenant, the God of redemption. The God who came made promises with Abraham and Moses and David. And when he comes to his God, all that he finds upon his God's face is a frowning displeasure. As we consider verse 16, we have to stress this. The countenance of the Lord revealed in verse 16 is not by chance. The God of the Scriptures is not like us, and this is precious good news. God did not wake up the morning Psalm 80 was written and just decide to frown at His people. Our God is not subject to mood swings like we are. Our God was not having a bad day. Rather, what brought about this frown? Well, it was the continued habitual and unrepentant 
sin of the people of God. These people were breaking the covenant with God, and their breaking of the covenant with God brought about the rebuke of his face. Their sin brought about this face of God. So, brothers and sisters, it's, it's worthwhile to pause here and just think about this. Behold the God of the Scriptures. What we find in verse 16 is a true representation of your God. They perish at the rebuke of your face. Believer, hold this true. This is your God. He's a God who will scowl. He's a God who grows displeased at the sight of sin. He's a God who will trouble his people and remove all comfort and support from them. This God of the scriptures is not a grandfatherly God who sits in the heavens and winks at whatever is going on in the earth. This God in the heavens is not a slouch. He's not an ever-positive life coach, always affirming what you do. No, he's a God who rebukes, and you can see it on his face. A God not to be trifled with. We would do well to take verse 16 and put it in our hearts. They, they perish, the psalmist says, at the rebuke of your face. Now, while all of this is true, if this is where the psalm endeth, if this is all that we learned about God in Psalm 80, what would Psalm 80 be? It would be a psalm of terror, a psalm of unrelenting sorrow and judgment. While all of this is true, there is something glorious here. There is more to this song. And catch this. While Israel is looking at the face of their God, they look up in the heavens, they see the face of God, and they find a frown. Something happens. The frowning God begins to do something strange to his people. What does he do? The frowning God begins to work his purposes of grace in the people of God. So when you're reading the scriptures, you need to read closely and take note of the words. And if you study Psalm 80 closely, there is a glorious life-giving repetition of words. And if you miss this life-giving repetition of words, you're going to miss out on the gospel this morning. So listen again to verse 16. This is our translation. They perish at the rebuke of your face. Now go to verse 3 and listen to this. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Then go to verse 7 and listen. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Then go to verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. What's going on here? Well, we find the mysterious grace of God at work. God has chastened his people. He has disciplined his people. But his chastening and discipline has produced a new desire in the people of God. God is doing something here. What's the result? Well, these people get new desires. And what is their desire? Well, we find many petitions and requests in Psalm 80. They request that God would deliver them from their enemies. The people ask that God would return them to their land. They ask that God would give them a new lease on life. But at the heart of this song, the petition that is repeated over and over again three times, the request that is put in the foreground so that we can't miss it or overlook it, is a request to see something different on the face of God. What are the people crying out for? They say, let your face shine. We want to see something different on your face, O oh God. Let your face shine. That's God's grace at work. And we might miss out on the, the profundity of these words. We can ask, well, what's so important about the face of God? 
And why would we care if God's face is shining or not? What's so important about that? So what we need to do this morning is we need to broaden out our gaze from Psalm 80. And when we broaden out our gaze from Psalm 80, we find this petition, let your face shine, that this petition brings us to the heart, the beating heart of the Scriptures. So we can go to Numbers chapter 6 this morning, verses 22 through 25. And when we go to Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 25, these words sum up the entire purpose of God's actions toward fallen man. These verses reveal what God wants to accomplish in his people's lives. This is what God wants for his people. Listen to what the Lord says. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. There's a connection here, and we need to make this connection. Did you, did you hear those words? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. This helps us. When the people of Israel in Psalm 80 are crying out, let your face shine, what are they crying out for? They're crying out for the fullness of covenant blessings. They want God as he has pledged himself in the covenant of grace. Simply put, we could say that they desire the nearness of God. We can work away at this because this is glorious, what God has done to their hearts. They want to taste in their mouths the steadfast love of God again. They want to see with their eyes the evidences of the Lord's enduring faithfulness. They want to hear with their ears the sweet refrains of, of the promises of the Lord. They want their bodies washed clean with the abundant compassion of their God. Let your face shine. That's what they're asking for. They want the, the nearness, the delightful presence of God. What they really want when they cry out, let your face shine, is they want God himself. They want what's requested in Psalm 42. In essence, they're saying this, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Let your face shine. We can go back to how we started this morning. What does God think about you? What does God think about you? We can't leave this question behind because it's the most important question we can ask of ourselves. What does God think about me? He's not the God of deism, a God who's far, a God who's distant. No, he's a God who knows absolutely everything about me and he has thoughts about me. What does he think about me? Perhaps this morning you've been listening to this sermon and your answer goes something like this. What does God think about me? Well, all I see upon the face of God is a mighty frown. My sins have risen up and there's this great separation between me and God and I am keenly aware at this point in my life of his displeasure against me. I find myself in Psalm 80. In fact, Psalm 80 is, is my song. I can sing it. He has fed me with tears. That's the basic staple of my diet. I eat the bread of tears and I drink from the cup of overflowing tears. He has broken down my walls and he has handed me over to the enemy. The wild boar has come in and is destroying me. I have been burnt up and cut down. I'm undone. All I see upon the face of God is this mighty frown. 
Perhaps you're not in such dire straits this morning. But as you consider this question, what does God think about me? And as you consider Psalm 80, you feel that something is just off in your life. While you, while you, when you look into the heavens and see the face of God, while you don't see a, a scowl on his face or sense his displeasure, you, you at the same time don't find and sense his shining face towards you. As you assess your heart, all that you find in it is dryness and dullness and barrenness. As you look to God and you, you think about all the good things of the gospel, you, you realize that they're all distant and far from you. Phrases like fullness of covenant blessing, the near presence of God, satisfaction in God, joy in God, delight in God, all seem like a distant memory. Oh yeah, I've tasted those things at one point in my life, but I can barely remember what that's like right now. I'm so far away from that. Something's not right with me now. And so we ask, well, what can be done? What can be done for us? What can be done for you? Well, Israel in their circumstances did what? They cried out to the Lord. They said this, let your face shine that we may be saved. And as we think about this petition, it reveals to us our one need. Sinner, your great need. If you're separated from God and you sense his, his displeasure, you need to see the shining face of God. And dull and weary saint, if you haven't tasted the goodness of God in a long time and you feel dry and barren, your great need today is to see the shining face of God of God. And the truth is, if you see the shining face of God, you will be saved. That's what the scriptures say. Let your face shine that we may be saved. There is a connection there. And so the question that we have to wrestle with is, where shall we find the shining face of God? Where shall we find the shining face of God? How can we lay hold of that face? How can we see God like that? Brothers and sisters, our instincts have been trained by the Scriptures. We know the Scriptures. And we should know how to answer this question. If we want to see the shining face of God, where must we go? Better question, to whom must we go? We must go to Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, revealed in His Gospel. If we want to see the shining face of God, if we want to taste His, His love, if we want to remember His faithfulness, if we want to be washed in His compassion, we must go to His Son. We want forgiveness and reconciliation and renewed life. We must go to his son. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Because there's a play on words, and we should pick it up after reading Psalm 80. The apostle writes, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, there's the glory of God. What's the glory of God? Well, it's the irradiance, the, the, the full display of God's attributes. So think about it. The, the abundance of God's love. The abundance of God's compassion. The abundance of God's faithfulness. That's the glory of God. It's the, the revelation of that. Where is the revelation of that found? He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, what Israel prayed for, let your face shine, has been answered for us in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Do you see that connection? Do you see what Paul's pointing us towards? 
the face of Jesus Christ. That's where we see the shining face of God. And the gospel teaches us this morning that all the riches and all the blessings of the covenant of grace are bound up in this Jesus. And all of those who enter into Christ Jesus enjoy the fullness of the covenant. All of the blessings, all of God's love can be found in Jesus Christ. So as we think about this, the answer for the sinner separated for God and the answer for the dull and weary saint, for people like you and me, is the same answer. What do we need this morning? We need Jesus Christ. And so the gospel preaches to us this morning, come and welcome Jesus Christ. And when you come and welcome Jesus Christ, you find the shining face of God. That's the answer to Israel's prayer. And we can go back to Israel's prayer. Israel prayed, let your face shine that we may be saved. We can do some reasoning this morning. Sinner, I can guarantee you this. If you enter into Christ Jesus, that great saving refuge, if you enter into Jesus Christ, casting all of your sins upon him and taking from him all of his righteous merits, if you enter into this Jesus, you will find the shining face of God forever. You'll be saved. That's the logic of the scriptures. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And we can reason as Christians with ourselves. Dull and weary saint, I can guarantee you this. If you return to Jesus Christ today, and if you drink deeply from his supplies of grace, if you return to Jesus Christ this morning, not leaning upon your own strength or your own resources, if you return to Jesus Christ this morning, relying only upon him for your life and your health and your joy and for everything you need, you will find, once again, the shining face of God. You can take that to the bank. The the scriptures say, let your face shine that we may be saved. You find Jesus, you return to Jesus, you will find salvation. There is a link there, an unbreakable link. So do it. Find Jesus, return to him, or come to him the first time. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now what we've done this morning is we've made a gigantic leap. We've been studying Psalm 80 closely looking at it, and then all of a sudden we we made this gigantic leap to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been trained to do that. We know how the scriptures lead us. Everything terminates on Jesus. Wherever you're reading in your Bibles, you need to get to Jesus. But when we make this leap to Jesus, we don't need to leave behind Psalm 80. So I want to give you a quote this morning from the great Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield. This is a, a money quote. He says this, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or not at all perceived before. The part of the quote you you need to land on is this. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lit. What's Warfield talking about? Well, he says that the, there's, this, there's this shadowiness in the Old Testament, that there's obscurity to what's going on. That's from our perspective as we read it. But he says at the same time that there's darkness, it doesn't mean that, that the Old Testament's void. Even though we can't see there oftentimes, it's not void. 
It's a chamber richly furnished. And what he means by this is when you go to the Old Testament, there's grace in the Old Testament. There's gospel in the Old Testament. There's redemption in the Old Testament. Even more, we can say Jesus Christ is present in the Old Testament with his whole gospel. But it's often obscured from our eyes. And so we've got the New Testament behind us, and the New Testament's giving us light. And with the light of the New Testament, we can go back to the Old Testament, and we can see how richly furnished it is. And so B.B. Warfield challenges us this morning. We could say that Psalm 88 is a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. And so with the New Testament behind us, and what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where is Jesus here in Psalm 80? Where are the riches of the gospel in Psalm 80? Where's redemption? Well, go back to Psalm 80 because Jesus is there. Look at verses 17 and 18. The psalmist says this, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. So get this. We've got to put this all together in our minds. Here's Israel in the midst of great trouble. It's the emotional trauma. It's political catastrophe. It's spiritual depression. And here's Israel wrestling with these things, crying out to the Lord. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine. And what did they do, what did they do in the midst of all of this? Well, they set their hope on a very particular matter. They set their hope upon a coming man. They fixed their eyes upon the man at God's right hand. They strained to see this son of man made strong by God himself. They set their hope forward to someone who's going to come. And that's their hope. That's where redemption is found. And we see that Jesus is right in this psalm. And that's what the people of God were consoling themselves with in the midst of their trouble, that God would raise up a man for them. So brothers and sisters, may we learn to do the same thing. We're entrenched in the season of Advent right now and Christmas is right around the corner. You're going to blink your eyes and it's going to be Christmas morning. My prayer for you this Advent season with Christmas coming is that this song would be your song. And that you would learn to sing with Israel. That whatever circumstances you find yourself in, whether you're in Israel's circumstances, there's emotional trauma, or you're experiencing some kind of disaster, or you're in this midst of spiritual depression, whatever it might be, that you might set your heart as Israel did, set it towards the coming Son of Man. That you may set your heart this Christmas season towards Jesus, and by setting your heart towards Jesus, you would see again the shining face of God, or as Paul says, the glory of God. My prayer is that you would sing with joy this Christmas season as Israel did. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray with Israel. Let your face shine. Let your face shine upon us. That's what we need. That's all that we desire. See your shining face. We long for the fullness of covenant blessing. And so we pray this morning. Oh, Father, let not the sinner be separated from you, but pour out grace that they might turn to Christ. And Father, we pray for the dull and weary saint this morning. Would they not stay far off from you, but would they turn again to Jesus Christ and experience your shining 
face. We ask that you would refresh us and that you would encourage us, that you would rebuke us, and that you would change us now with this very word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, in whom the glory of God shines. Amen.